from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Aaron Wagner on April 17, 2017. Aaron was a devout Mormon when she encountered the Baha'i faith for the first time. She explains how a devout Mormon could become a Baha'i and still love the Mormon church as much as she does. I started the interview by asking Aaron where she grew up. And what was it like growing up there? I lived in Cheyenne, Wyoming until I was about 11, and then in Meridian, Idaho, which is outside of Boise, until I graduated from high school. Your world is small when you are not even yet a preteen, but we delivered newspapers in that neighborhood, so we felt like the entire place was like our own private backyard, and we had this cul-de-sac that we lived on that we called The Circle and played all of our games there. My parents were fairly young and there were like five of us kids and we rented out half the house and there was a lot of time with my parents, like they both worked. And so we kids were quite self-sufficient, I would say. And then when we moved to Idaho, it was to be closer to family. That's where my mom's side of the family is from specifically. You know, rather than being in kind of a suburban setup, we were out in the country. We had kind of an acre to ourselves. We moved to the house that my mom grew up in to actually care for my grandmother, who at that time was 80. And we ended up caring for her for four years until she passed away. But we were kind of out in the country. We had an aunt and uncle across the street and would like go over there to get eggs and had like a big garden that, you know, we continually battled the weeds in. And I I now live in the Midwest. For anyone who does not live out West, I would like to inform you that weeding is a completely different experience in Minnesota versus Idaho. So the summers that we as kids spent battling the weeds were actually a pretty significant portion of my memories. So anybody complaining about weeding in the Midwest or maybe even the East say, well, you try weeding in the West. You have no idea. Like, weed out of concrete and then come talk to me. (laughs) So what was religious life like growing up? Very strong. So my mom's side of the family, seven generations ago, back in the 1830s, 1840s, converted to Mormonism in the very, very, very early days. Some of them here in the U.S., some of them actually in South Africa and then migrated to the U.S. The family has just been strong, you know, Mormon stock ever since. I mean, we each know our generational number. I'm number seven. And so it was church every week was just absolutely embedded into our lives, like prayer in the morning, prayer in the evening, scripture study as a family. With the parents being gone quite a bit, And I I think part of this might also just be like the personalities that we have in my family. But we were very like morally policing of each other as children, which uh, in our case, I think was for the most part a good thing. Although I can definitely think of circumstances where I overstepped boundaries, my poor siblings, but really strong religious background and not just in terms of like its spiritual support, but we didn't have any other family in Wyoming 
so church was the extended family was the support system. And then with my parents kind of each having their jobs and, you know, getting by paycheck to paycheck, it was actually the church that helped make ends meet a lot. I remember every Saturday night we went to the church and we like set up all of the chairs for the next day. And that was like the thing we did as a family. And when I was much older, I found out the reason we did that was because the church helped us make ends meet regularly. And in Mormonism, some people have like heard of this, but don't know, have a, have a whole lot of information. Mormons are industrious, like get stuff done really like pioneer ethic, long view, super practical. So the church recognizing that there were material needs amongst its members from the very earliest days has farms and orchards and entire like production systems run by the members of the church in order to produce food so that people can have food. And we often, I mean, I seem to remember us often eating the church's produced food, which is just like, I mean, any other branded food, except that it's not fancily labeled. I mean, it's canned peaches. I mean, everybody in the church has at some point or other gone to the church cannery and canned peaches, except for me, because I became a Baha'i. So in Cheyenne, especially the church was our world. That's where we knew people from. When I was young, the lady whose daycare I went to, she was from our congregation. And if I use the word ward, that's the term for a Mormon congregation. And then going to Idaho, there was a large population of Mormons. I think 25% of Idaho is Mormon. And then we were in the portion of not the most concentrated, but a higher concentrated area. And all of my family around there were members of the church. And we have these, again, just kind of pioneer stories of my family coming over, having left Kirtland, Ohio, and then having left Missouri, like been run out of Missouri and trekking across the country, getting to, and then, you know, Brigham Young, not wanting the saints to be vulnerable to being pushed out again, told them to spread out. And my family got sent first to Franklin County, Idaho, and then kind of just like spread out from there. And, you know, my brown shit ended up in Meridian. It was life. In high school, uh, we had seminary, which was an extra hour of school every day. And you could take it out in the middle of the day. There were enough members that there was actually a little like seminary building right next to the school property that you could take an hour out from your day and go take an hour of seminary. Or if your schedule didn't allow that, you went to school for zero hour to take seminary. So by the time like I graduated from high school, had done four years of seminary and, you know, scripture study, weekly youth activities. Religion was what we breathed. It's interesting. Your family on your mother's side, you say you can go back to, it sounds like, near the beginning of the start of, of oh, the yeah. Church. Because Very uh, beginning. What was the year that it began? There's the year that Joseph Smith had the first vision, and then there's the year that it was organized, which, oh my gosh, I haven't been thinking about the dates of Mormon history for a while, I think 1832, and that's right about the time. And there were people who were teaching, you know, kind of immediately prior to that, but that's right about the time that my family came into Mormonism. And what about on your father's side? My dad is a convert. So I get kind of both perspectives, the really long haul on my mom's side. And then my dad, when he was, I think, 12 years old, and my dad grew up in a a very rural environment in Kansas and Nebraska, moved around a lot. There's this story about how when he was, I think, 16, he got sent to work on the uncle's farm for a while. And then at the end of the summer, he gets this postcard from his sister that says, hey, school's starting. You need to come to school. 
but they had moved and not told my dad. He like looked at the postmark and as a 16 year old boy found his way to like that area of Nevada. And my dad has this otherworldly sense of direction. And just kind of as he was, you know, getting out there, figured out where the house must be, walked straight to the neighborhood, walked straight up to the house. I mean, it's almost savant quality, my dad's ability to get around as demonstrated by his 16 year old multi like state crossing journey. But like not a very functional family. His parents got divorced when divorce was not okay. My dad is a very strong introvert and has a very rich inner life, which unfortunately in too many cases means that you are going to get bullied. And he was in an environment where being a sensitive soul, there were no redeeming qualities to that. So he grew up rough. The stories about like how he was treated in various circumstances make me want to cry. But when he was 12 years old, missionaries knocked on their door and my grandma thought, well, God could probably help us. Let's see if this church thing would be good for our family. So the family got into it. And then my grandpa went away for a summer to work. And when he came back, he had kind of lost interest. And then the rest of the family didn't really keep interest either. But church was a place where my dad had like some degree of belonging, some degree of structure, some degree of acceptance. And so he held on. There were a few years, I think when he was in the military after high school, that he wasn't really active, but then he got back into it. And it is the structure and kind of the paradigm of reality that he needed to be able to function despite the hardship of his early years. You said you became a Baha'i. When did that happen? Well, the story starts during my mission. Explain that (laughs) (laughs) for the uninitiated. Sure thing. In Mormonism, we read throughout the Bible that he called prophets to you know, make sure that people had correct understanding and to organize the people so that they can seek their individual salvation through Christ and also so that they as a whole can become Zion. And the idea is that having prophets was not just an early phase of our interactions with God. It is the like regular pattern. That is how he interfaces. Unfortunately, after Christ came and established his church and the apostles were doing their work, the apostles were martyred and there was a long period of time wherein The people weren't ready for a prophet, but eventually the people were again. And so Joseph Smith, I won't delve into the story, but Joseph Smith was called as a prophet in the same way, the same caliber that you read about the prophets of old and kind of reestablished, clarified some teachings that had gotten like changed or misinterpreted over time and reestablished the original organization with the original authority, hence Mormonism. Just as during, you know, for example, the New Testament, the apostles and others were called to spread the gospel. In Mormonism, it's the same thing. And so the youth are given the opportunity to serve missions. It's two years for the boys and a year and a half for the girls. You simply tell the church, I'm willing to serve a mission, and they tell you where you are needed. That is the only thing you do for that entire time period. Like you leave behind everything. You can call your mom on Mother's Day and you can call your family on Christmas. And aside from that, you write letters once a week. Like it is a very unique experience in that I know very few people who have been able to focus so singularly on something. So even even in the digital age, I guess they can write via email. You can write your immediate family and grandparents via email and everybody else is just letters. 
you are very consciously removed from everything and you get up at 6.30 in the morning, you have half an hour of exercise, you have an hour to get ready and have breakfast, you do personal scripture study for an hour, and then you study with your companion, particularly looking at who are the people we're going to teach today and what do they need, how do we create these lessons. That's for another hour, and then you go out and work for two to three hours, and then you can take a one-hour break for lunch whenever is kind of right for you. Then you go out and work another three or four hours and you take a one hour break for dinner, preferably with either members of the congregation or people you are teaching. And then you go out and you work until nine o'clock. If you're teaching someone, you can come back at 930. But otherwise, you are in the door at nine o'clock and you have half an hour to kind of go over what happened that day, plan out your next day and like 45 minutes ish to decompress. And you are in bed at 1030 on the dots. There's one day a week when you have like three quarters of the day to do laundry, to clean up the place to take a nap, but otherwise that is all day, every day for a year and a half or two years. Wow, that's very rigorous. Yes, and (laughs) really good experience to have when you were so young. Mm -hmm. Recognizing you know, the strength that I had in my family because of Mormonism and specifically looking at the role of Mormonism in my father's life and how that impacted me, I thought, well, clearly, like everything good in my life is from Mormonism. I need to go out and pay this forward to the next girl whose father will have met the missionaries. So I decided to serve a mission. And while I was on my mission, we knocked on a door and this lady answered who said, oh, it's the missionaries it's girls. I didn't know they sent out girls and immediately welcomed us in, which never happens. (laughs) Uh, I mean, the looks we were giving each other, my companion and I, my missionary companion, like otherworldly. And so we stepped inside and said, well, we have a message that we are seeking to share. May we share this with you? And she said, well, certainly, as long as I can kind of share, you know, my message with you. And that to me was a win-win because when you get to hear people talk about where they're coming from, then you can identify, oh, here's what we have to add. You can better understand them. I mean, always listen before you speak. And beyond that, oh, I was just fervent in my faith as a Mormon and had really taken to heart the teaching in Mormonism that you can't rely on other people's testimonies, other people's beliefs that this is true. You need to seek out your own. So I had very clearly delineated the elements of Mormonism that absolutely I believe this with all my heart and the elements that were, well, I don't believe this yet, but I'm going to seek out understanding over time and it will happen in God's good time. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I had also said, well, if it's true, it can be questioned and that's perfectly fine. And if I want people to look into my religion, ought I not to look into theirs as well? You know, only truth can come out of it. So I had sought out opportunities to learn about other religions growing up. She was bah something, which I had never (laughs) even heard of. And I was salivating at the mouth, like just, okay, tell me everything. And she went through like a little bit of history, which I knew nothing about 19th century Persia. So I didn't even have a cubbyhole to put that information into. Then she shared the concept in the Baha'i faith of progressive revelation, which is that the world's major religions, far from being exclusive of one another, that they are essentially 
grades in a continuing education, just as algebra can look completely different from calculus, but they are both math. And if you want to master mathematics, you desperately need both of them, but they build upon each other. And in that same way, you have Moses who teaches obedience. And as the people like learn obedience and integrate it into their lives and their culture and their society, then that paves the way for Christ to be able to come and teach a higher law of love. And then eventually that paves the way for Muhammad to be able to come and teach a higher law of submission to God. And we get to go on this eternal journey as humanity of continually learning and applying these higher laws. Seldom in my life have I felt like my mind was a blank slate. But in that moment when she explained progressive revelation, it was because Immediately prior to my mission, I bought a copy of the Quran and was reading it because I had a few weeks to do nothing. So I sat in front of our the fireplace in my parents' house and was reading and could sense no difference in the writings of the Quran versus the writings of Mormonism or, you know, the Bible or I, any of those. It was just like, okay, like I'm hearing the same voice here. I don't see how the Quran fits into the bigger picture, but I believe that God is moving in, in like many different ways, many different places beyond our comprehension. His ways are higher than our ways. And, you know, if I'm lucky, maybe in this life or the next, I'll understand how this piece fits. And she just explained to me how the piece fit. So it was just this moment of, I would almost call it blinding clarity. Like I didn't know what I knew anymore because that was such a fundamental level clarification. And yet in that moment to me was so obviously true. And so, you know, asked questions, she shared more. I can't even remember what else we covered that night, but I remember leaving with the very distinct thought that that might have just turned my world upside down and ruined everything. And I am surprisingly calm. And I had this distinct feeling that I needed to understand further at some point in the future why this resonated so much. There was definitely something that I was to get out of it and carry forward, but that now is not the time. I had committed a period of my life to paying forward the good that I had received and was allowed to keep doing that. So finished up my mission. After my mission, I was in school, had an internship, and was dating a guy who was Catholic, investigating Mormonism. Oh, that's interesting. Well, oh, it gets more interesting. I taught him on my mission. Him and his girlfriend. Hmm. Um, (laughs) But there was no scandal. It sounds scandalous. There was none whatsoever. There, There are like years in between each of these events and very good, healthy boundaries and respectful behavior. We were dating and I have been very clear with him in my boundaries and that, you know, I am Mormon and I want the Mormon life, like everything about it. If Mormonism is not for you, then this probably won't work out. And I want to be honest with you at the, the beginning, although I don't think I was so gentle. He was getting to the point that he was kind of going to decide whether or not to become Mormon. And I realized if he becomes Mormon, he's probably going to want to marry me. And I haven't figured out that whole like Baha'i thing yet. Oh, so, so that was still in the back of your mind. Yeah, I would know when the time had come to look into it and all of a sudden the time had come. And there was one specific conversation where it became clear that the time had come. And that was when he was saying that, you know, he had like really looked into Mormonism, felt like he had investigated it thoroughly, but kind of wished that he had been learning about other religions at the same time so that he could compare that experience. And I told him well, I can like break that down for you. You know, it's Mormonism or it's Baha'i. And I went, oh, right, that thing. I haven't done that yet. So it just so happens that I had an internship in Chicago at the time. 
and was driving down the road one day. I was actually on my way to visit the botanical gardens and there was this little brown sign on the side that said Baha'i Temple. And so I swerved off the freeway had no idea what I was like getting into and eventually turned the corner and there was the Baha'i Temple in Wilmette, which is stunningly gorgeous. Anyway, picked up a couple of books and just integrated those into my daily scripture study routine. And in no time flat was able to see that, you know, everything in here that I'm reading is like airtight and I believe this and it enhances my understanding of Mormonism. But it was not clear to me whether I was supposed to change to be a Baha'i because it's all about unity and like the the inherent inclusion and the fact that like we're not practicing different religions. We're practicing the same religion different ways. So it wasn't clear whether I was to actually become a Baha'i or just incorporate these teachings into my Mormonness. I had about three months of studying on my own, completely isolated. And then sought out the local community. There is a Baha'i community in Salt Lake City, and I was south of that. I was attending Brigham Young University, the church's school at the time. So studied it on my own for three months. And mind you, I had been a missionary trained by one of the most effective proselytizing like institutions on the face of the planet. So I knew what the religious investigation process was. So I simply put myself on that religious investigation process, studied it on my own. And then for about three months, I was involved in both all of my usual religious activities then also got involved with the Baha'i community, including helping with a junior youth group, and attending feast, which is the the Baha'i Sabbath. So I was attending their Sabbath services with them. Yeah, helping with youth activities that kind of surround doing service in communities and learning to kind of read your reality and make sure that when you're looking at your community, that you're understanding what's really there and not just kind of projecting your own paradigm onto it. So I was doing all these things. And at the end of three months was like, yeah, there's no question. I am Baha'i. It's not even a question of whether or not I believe it. I am this. Like, ah. So then was kind of faced with while I'm living with my aunt and uncle, whom I adore, who are Mormon, going to a Mormon university where I have this like scholarship, you know, and the tuition at BYU is so low. It was like $2,500 a semester while I was there to go to this amazing university, in part because of the tithes that you pay to the church. And those help fund the school as well. And so like, I'm taking advantage of that, but not going to be able to pay my tithes for the rest of my life, thereby like kind of reciprocating. And like, should I move out of my aunt and uncle's because I don't want them to feel disappointed or like they somehow failed or like I'm a bad influence in the house now? Yeah, that was a really depressing time. But I should actually back up because there was at the beginning when I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then there was a moment that was my tipping point. I had gotten sick. And so instead of doing my usual scripture study, I was just listening to a podcast, a Baha'i podcast. And I can't remember if it was this one or a different one while laying in bed. And a lady, I think by the name of Erica Toussaint, was sharing this Baha'i prayer that says, thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. And she was sharing an insight that it's easy to interpret that as a commandment, go, get to know me and worship me. But that, in fact, perhaps that's more of a description, or in addition to being a commandment, maybe it's also a description, that 
the way that, you know, a car is made to drive, we are made to know and worship God. The way that we breathe is the same way we know and worship God. We can't not do it. It's the function of who and what we are. She shared the thought that even when we are doing harm, perhaps it is because we are uneducated in the way that we are seeking out God. You can love someone, you can be jealous of someone, but what is jealousy but a desire for love? And at that point, I thought, that's a very different take on sin from what I was raised with. And I thought about, you know, the story of Adam and Eve, which I, at that point, as a completely devout and faithful Mormon, felt was allegorical. And I I just thought, you know, okay, so what if we don't actually understand what the story of Adam and Eve is like really trying to teach us? And I had this moment of transcendent lightness. I had, from the time that I had become a teenager, had crippling anxiety. And I had tried medications and I had tried exercise, like having an active lifestyle. And it became especially clear to me while I was on my mission just how anxious I was because I was spending 24-7 with someone else who wasn't necessarily anxious. And the differences are night and day. So when I got back from my mission, I decided that I was going to take the minimum number of classes. I was going to live with family instead of having a job. And I was going to try to have the least stressful life possible. And I was going to take on this anxiety and not let it rule my life. And in that moment, when I heard that thought, my anxiety was gone. And it just felt so wonderful. I realized that the way I had seen the world was very much, I mean, to use a financial analogy, it was a debt paradigm where I was always owing. And the very best that I could do would be to like come even, but there was never any getting ahead. Like that was for the next life. At this life, it's a test. And, you know, by the grace of Christ's atonement, we are able to be cleansed of sin. And in the next life is when we get to now engage in eternal progression. And the thought that she shared reframed it. The zero line was no longer above me. It was at my feet. And even if I stumbled and made mistakes as I tried to go about being the best person I could, there was kind of nowhere to go but up. And that was completely okay. Like wherever I was in the process, that was okay. I have eternity. Like, let me savor this process. I remember walking into the backyard and stood on the patio and just looked at the world and the world looked different. And I don't know if that moment lasted like 30 seconds or 30 minutes, but immediately thereafter, the depression hit because everything in my life was integrated into the church. There was no difference between Aaron and Mormonism, like genetically, (laughs) even. I'm seventh generation Mormon, and I loved being a member of the congregation and having daily opportunities to serve others and be served and the security that came with it and how intelligently everything is organized within the church and the fact that it is, you know, so much a safe place to be human and yet want to be better. Like, I just realized that, like, I wasn't going to necessarily have that anymore. Like, I didn't have the words then, but I understand now that much of my paradigm um, and the paradigm of those around me was very much an us versus them mentality, which is what makes us so strong. We're on the inside of something important, but I had in just 
a moment gone from being one of us to being one of them and did not know how people would respond to that. So that was devastating and took five years to recover from. I ended up becoming a Baha'i and there were among my friends and family, this really was, I mean, if they were to be super dogmatic, they would have had loads of opportunities for saying extremely demeaning things and having being disrespectful, and they didn't. There were very few comments that were hurtful, and even the ones that like were hurtful were not meant to be hurtful. They just didn't have another way of seeing the situation. So kudos to my people who were amazing, but that still didn't change the fact that I was not one of us. I was one of them, at least in my mind. But I became a Baha'i, and even though it had kind of this unforeseen impact in like my interpretation of who I am in this bigger world, and even just the nature of relationships, nonetheless, I have not looked back. Oh my gosh, it is so freeing to be able to look at people of all religions and see them as being on the same team as you are. And it is both empowering and challenging to recognize that your first responsibility is to practice independent investigation of truth. Any concepts that you encounter, you have the God-given responsibility and the God-given capacity to say, do I believe this? Not because someone told it to me or it came from a trustworthy source or whatever, but with my powers of logic and my emotional discernment, do I believe that this thing is true? Yeah. Haven't looked back. That's very interesting, Erin, because how would you say you compare to your other co-religionists in the Mormon church in regards to this idea of learning something from people that you were giving the message to? And was that um, something that was unique about your perspective that allowed you to let the Baha'i faith come in? I would say that there is a spectrum you know what, you find this in every single religion. Within the teachings, you can find passages that say that you need to protect yourself from outside influences and not learn about them lest you be deceived. And I know people who live that way within Mormonism. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are teachings that say that, you know, truth is truth and we are to seek it out and to be willing to sacrifice everything in pursuit of truth and goodness and God. Uh, and I know Mormons who live that way. And I'm definitely on like that end of the spectrum, but I know people who are like the whole way across. And you will often in a single meeting, you will hear people express both ends of that because truth is like reality is multifaceted and everything is a balance. And so you'll hear, you know, we need to be aware of being deceived and not expose ourselves to information that, you know, could lead us astray. And yet at the same time, we also need to be pursuing truth. I guess I just am not afraid of being deceived anymore. I know that I may not be able to discern facts like was Tom at the grocery store at 7 p.m. last night? Well, I can't tell you that, but I can discern things like justice and love and kindness and wisdom and reason and all of these other attributes, you know, all these other virtues and these gifts of God. All of us can discern those. That's part of the definition of being human. Did you feel that you could articulate clearly the process you were going through being open to the concept of the Baha'i faith to your relatives, or was it a difficult thing for you to articulate? Putting it into words was not a challenge. 
having situations where it was sensitive and appropriate to put into words was the challenge. And so there are people with whom I still haven't had the conversation about why I became Baha'i who have just kind of heard it word of mouth because there isn't a way of sharing it that could be perceived as anything less than religiously violent. Man, I can't tell you how Mormon I was. I had not missed church in, I think, like three and a half years until the week I became a Baha'i. So the fact that someone could be that devout and suddenly become something else without having, you know, any like sins over time leading me astray or like having none of these like weaknesses that are usually easy to peg deviance upon. Just the fact that I could be that Mormon and then decide not to be anymore is inherently like an emotionally violent concept for some people. And so I haven't had the conversation with a lot of people because there's not a way to have the conversation where they could feel like love and safe. And then there were like a handful of other people who said, Aaron, if you believe it's true, I support you. And, oh, I love those people. That was when, like, of all the times in my life, that was when I knew what it felt like to be loved. And various spectrums in between. Mormonism is very polite. And I don't know if that's because, you know, politeness is a virtue of God or if it's because so many Mormons came from Britain. But (laughs) Mormons are very polite. So that means there are some conversations that can't happen, and that means there are other things being thought that aren't said. Did you share your process with some of your family as you were going through this realization of Mm -hmm. your belief that the Baha'i faith was true? As soon as I had that experience where I had to start taking it seriously, I called and told my parents, and for the first time in my life, my dad was disappointed and my mom cried buckets. Kudos to them for, like, loving and being grateful for what they had received and wanting to make sure that I didn't lose that because all that they could understand from that paradigm was that I was walking away from the goodness. But they were patient and we learned how to communicate and that's like all healed up. They're crazy supportive now and like just full of love. But that was a hard conversation to have at first. When I became a Baha'i, I was attending Brigham Young University, where if you are a member of the church, church attendance is obligatory for your educational standing. Well, let me back up. I told my bishop, who is the leader of the congregation, just met with him and was like, hey, FYI, I started learning about this thing. And, you know, as the person who has a a spiritual stewardship over my well-being, I feel like you deserve to know, and I'm going to look into it, and wherever truth leads me, I will go. And again, this is one of those moments where you just like want to give him a massive thumbs up. He said, you know, learn about it, do whatever you need to, I can tell you the truth will lead you back. Uh, and he gave an example of someone who had like had a period of her life where she was had learned about another religion, kind of gone into another religion, and then come back into Mormonism. But he um, had that attitude of, I love you enough to like let you go. If you love it, let it go. I did not have the heart to come back and tell him that I had become a Baha'i because I didn't want him to think that he had made a mistake because he did that exactly right. But that meant that I got to a point where like, 
I was now Baha'i and not Mormon, but I wasn't comfortable telling most people because I didn't feel that I could do so in a way that wouldn't be harmful. So it just so happens that there was kind of a friend in need. And so I started working on a, a fundraising project for this friend and would go up to Salt Lake City every weekend to work on that and stay with my brother and sister-in-law. And that was kind of my very true excuse for not being at church. I can't remember if I told them while I was looking into it. I must have. But they became kind of my safe haven, themselves being completely devout members of the church, but on the spectrum of like, do what you believe is right. We completely empower you to do what you believe is right. I do have two other siblings who had of their own accord decided Mormonism wasn't for them. And so my family had been through this a little bit, but it was, I think, harder because I was the one who was like 100% in. It just came up in conversation with them sometime later the next time I saw them, and that was fine. And then my one other sibling, I think my mom told. Honestly, if I have any regrets about that, I wish I had told fewer people. Because in Mormonism, there is not a separation between the concepts of, like, she became not Mormon and something is terribly wrong. Those are so enmeshed that you can't say, well, she became not Mormon is something wrong. You know, investigate that and find out. And I think this is true, by the way, not just of Mormonism, but of any religious, political, whatever ideology. This is a very just human trait. You can almost say that I misled some people by telling them that I had become Baha'i because there was no way for them to understand it correctly. And I think that it would have been better if I had given them a long enough period of time to see me being me and for it to come up as old news. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe if I had done it that way, I would feel like I had deceived them. I don't know. But I I didn't feel like I was able to show respect for myself and for them very effectively by sharing it. So I, I shared it a little bit and then stopped sharing. My friends and family have really shown their true colors and they are awesome colors. There's a couple of things that come to mind there in your story. One is that I think there's something Baha'u'llah said that not everything a man knoweth is it necessarily timely. Not everything that a man knows can be disclosed. Not everything that can be disclosed can be considered as timely. And not every timely utterance can be considered as suited to the capacity of the hearers. That's it. That's it. So I think that's the concept that you are realizing looking back on things. Yes. And the other thing that struck me was the fact that these folks were so loving and open to your spiritual travel gives hope that really there can be religious unity. Until we can really accept each other as brethren, all in search for spiritual reality, we will be a divided humanity. And I think if you keep like tracing the thought process back to like what thought needs to happen and what thought needs to precede that and what thought needs to precede that, Mormonism is hyper-exclusive in the way that the faith is hyper-inclusive. And so having seen both ends of that spectrum, I think that the most fundamental mechanism is deciding that faith is the opposite of fear and that time spent fearing evil is time that we did not spend having faith in good. So if you can approach with this eye of faith that I can do my best, God will compensate, Christ will compensate, karma will compensate, 
or, you know, come back to bite me Mm -hmm. (laughs) appropriately. Justice will happen, but it's okay if I try. So like, it's okay if I put forth an effort, even if I am imperfect, it's okay for me to prioritize love over defense. Like I think that fundamental exercise of faith rather than fear. Anytime you recognize that you are afraid to have faith instead, that that is the hinge upon which the door swings. So Aaron, as you started learning what the Baha'i faith teachings are, and you were on the trajectory of being a Mormon for the rest of your life. Oh, yes, it would have been great. Was there a bend in the direction you were going as a devout Mormon to where you are now with what your understanding is of religious truth through the lens of the Baha'i faith? Yes, but it's funny because it it was not the kind of bend you might have thought because being so exquisitely conscious of the fact that I was the beneficiary of my ancestors who saw in Mormonism all the truth of the Christianity they had and then some. I saw in the Baha'i faith all of the truth of Mormonism and then some. And I apologize if there are like devout members of the church listening because I know that that is in many ways an offensive concept. But I saw in the faith all of the good that I had in Mormonism and more. And it was just very clearly, if I was grateful for my ancestors and even for my father who took that step forward and made that change, that now it was my turn to make that step and make it available for my own descendants. Because Mormons, we think on this like intergenerational level, like talking about your ancestors and your descendants is not an unusual thing at all. And I felt very distinctly that Mormonism had prepared me to receive the faith because it was within Mormonism that I learned all of these like fundamental spiritual truths, what what in the faith we would call the attributes of God, truthfulness, justice, kindness, wisdom, reason, these universal spiritual truths that are present in every religion because they are the religion. And this is me taking vast, beautiful teachings and putting them into like a hamburger-sized meal. Baha'u'llah, who is the founder of the Baha'i Faith, if you were to really summarize, he said essentially that there are three kinds of religious teachings. There are universal spiritual principles. There are commandments about how to effectively live those in your time and place to facilitate progress. And then there are the things that kind of get changed in religion over time. Within Mormonism, I had learned those universal spiritual principles, no question about it. And what I was being introduced to now was a new set of commandments about how to live those to facilitate progress. And so it was things like the practice of independent investigation of truth. Whereas in Mormonism, there was independent investigation of truth, but because we've believe that we have this prophet who is on the earth, who is like a successor to Joseph Smith in the same way that Joshua was a successor to Moses, that obedience is really important. So it was just a new commandment. Or in Mormonism, for example, to be very tangible, there's the commandment of modesty. Mormonism does a lot to protect against the spiritual dangers of over-sexualization. And so women, you know, they don't wear deep v-necks, your shoulders are covered, you don't wear things that are very short or extremely tight. Stepping into the faith, the commandment that I was given was, use your judgment. (laughs) Like, it, it, it very much felt like I was going from being a teenager living in my parents' house by their rules to like, you're an adult now, we taught you, you have these principles. 
So I was already on that trajectory. Like I had become as Baha'i as I could within Mormonism. And it is because of that that I recognized in the Baha'i faith what I did. However, that definitely accelerated it. My approach to everything is different now, again, because of independent investigation of truth, and I'm not afraid to listen to people, whatever position they may be coming from. My community life, whereas before it was, for the vast majority, limited to the congregation, all of that skill in how to live as a community, I now need to extend to literally all of my neighbors. And so when I did end up marrying my husband, moving into this town, I spent a number of years getting to know all the neighbors and putting on activities with the neighbors, like the junior youth group that I kind of learned to do when I was in Salt Lake and trying to like build that sense of community here that I had been so blessed to be raised with in Mormonism. Yeah, so it's just been this progression from, you know, having a very concrete teaching when I was younger to learning to function more and more upon the principles that had been underlying that concrete teaching. And it's funny because every now and again, as in every religion or every political leaning or whatever, you'll hear parents who are like, oh, I'm so worried about like, what if my children, when they grow up, despite all that I've taught them, what if they don't like follow in our paths? And yes, I want them to like do what they believe is right. But I have to admit as a parent, that worries me. And I kind of chuckle to myself a little bit because for me, the thing that was so eye-opening about the faith is that we are all practicing the same religion. It is like these universal spiritual principles, and it might have different wrappers on it. It has been so freeing to be able to walk into any house of worship and feel like I could authentically worship with the people there. You went to Brigham Young. I don't know what you were studying there. Did becoming a Baha'i somehow change the trajectory (laughs) of what you wanted to do for service in the world with the education you were getting at Brigham Young? I would say the first step, because in Mormonism, if you want to save the world, you do it by bringing people into Mormonism because that's where safety is. As a Baha'i, I had to wrap my brain around this idea that you're the leaven in the bread you spread out and serve the people where you are, whatever situation they may be from. Just in terms of my community life, I am far more engaged with the great variety of people who are physically around me than I was before. But then when it comes to the actual work that I do, (laughs) I currently do marketing. I am such a stereotypical millennial, like working on a startup and doing marketing for another startup. But my ultimate goal would actually be to kind of popularize what would essentially be ultra high-end trailer parks because I feel like we could live so much less expensively and be able to put our time and resources into things that bring greater happiness and goodness and progress except that if you don't have a house that's built a certain way and looks a certain way, there's a stigma attached to that. And so a lot of people who have so much to give to the world are stuck in these jobs that are not satisfying, that take them away from their families because like, they don't really feel like they have any other choice. And there is a specific writing in the Baha'i faith that says, the goal of every true believer is to free mankind from the struggle for existence. For years now, I, ever since I married a man who had a house and had to learn how to take care of the house, ever since then, I have been obsessed with this idea of what would that house look like that was less expensive, that was more simple, that was not built around materialistic values, but much more around spiritual values. And how could we translate that concrete example into 
our culture and our lives. So my ultimate goal in life is very much defined by that one quotation when it comes to the work I want to do and the contribution I want to make to humanity. Now, would that be the work that you would have done, you think, if you had remained as a Mormon? I don't think so. I don't know what I would have done, but I don't think so. That one passage is just so potent to me. I guess you expressed ultimately what you would like your work to do for the world, it sounds like. I would like to free the time of the people who have so much good to give to the world and just can't right now. So Aaron, anything else you want to say before we close? Yes, two thoughts. So one of them is that it is one of the teachings of the faith that was completely new to me is that when we look around the world and we see our institutions struggling, whether it's the political institutions that you know are struggling to function or the educational institutions, are they delivering the education that we need or the religious institutions, are they actually out to meet the spiritual needs of their congregations? All of these institutions, I had thought they were struggling because of the great evils in the world and that this was a bad omen. But the faith teaches that humanity is in the process of transitioning from its adolescence to its maturity. The institutions that met humanity's needs in its adolescence will no longer meet its needs in its maturity. And that we have capacities now that people didn't have a few hundred years ago culturally or spiritually. So we need different institutions. And so instead of looking at the world and being afraid or mourning, I look at the world and even the struggles that are happening. And I think I am so profoundly grateful to be actively working with my neighbors uh, and the members of the Baha'i community on creating alternative institutions, like teaching people how to truly work together. Frankly, teaching people how to function like a Mormon congregation (laughs) in many (laughs) regards. I'm ready for the new thing and am so grateful for the institutions that did bring us this far. And I think the greatest way to honor those institutions is by paving the way to the new one. And it's just such a relief to not feel like you have to fix politics or you have to fix religious institutions or whatever. You get to go out and through these core activities like doing youth activities in your neighborhood or having gatherings at your house. And there's an entire structure that would be another conversation. But through these activities that really bring people from these diverse backgrounds into face-to-face interaction, that I get to be part of planting the seeds of what propels humanity into its future. So bad news is not bad news the way it was before. The other thought is that Coming into the faith from a Mormon background, and especially since I love Mormonism, there are some really unique perspectives. For example, in Mormonism in its early days, and the faith in Mormonism started, I mean, kind of a decade-ish apart. But in its early days in Mormonism, the call was come to Zion, come to Zion. They sent out missionaries who brought people physically to wherever the church was headquartered at the time. Hence my ancestors coming from South Africa to the United States. So you have this culture that has formed and a geographic region of the United States that has these people. And and yet in the, the early days of the faith, the call was spread out, spread out. And they had a period of time where they literally said, we don't have any Baha'is in Mongolia who is willing to move to Mongolia. We don't have any Baha'is in Peru who is willing to move to Peru. Then to kind of compare the growth and the, the similarities and differences between the two religions, that in Mormonism, there is a very concrete 
culture. There is a way that you go about being Mormon, whereas there is not a way to go about being Baha'i. In Mormonism, the strength means that they are crazy effective at anything they undertake because we know what words to use and we know what behavior to expect of each other. And it feels to me like in the faith, everything moves at a snail's pace because we're still like from all these diverse backgrounds trying to figure out what we all mean when we use words. But on the other hand, in Mormonism, if that culture doesn't work for you, you're kind of out of luck. Whereas in the faith, the expectation is that whatever place you come from, whatever culture you come from, it is your opportunity to bring the goodness of that culture for everyone to enjoy. And the diversity is really embraced. And so there's this greater capacity for love and appreciation. So the strengths and weaknesses of each is just fascinating for me to watch. And then I would also say that in the faith, it teaches explicitly that we are to teach the faith, but we are not to proselytize. Well, I have a lot of experience proselytizing. I remember when I first heard of that, all of a sudden, my mission made sense because we would take these teachings to some people who like embraced it. And we had these spiritual bonding experiences that were exquisite and sublime. And then we would take the same teachings to someone else and have these like really caustic experiences. And I understood that like in some circumstances I was teaching and in others I was proselytizing. There's now this difference in the concept of meeting people where they're at versus wherever they're at, demanding that they meet you instead. So being able to kind of like flesh that out and and frankly, to learn how to communicate that even amongst the Baha'is, I have struggled to find the words about that line between teaching and proselytizing. But it's at least the concept to me is very, very poignant. Erin, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you for letting me join because it was a podcast that brought me so much good and being able to like potentially pay forward and also having like this platform, even though I'm not Mormon anymore, having this platform for being able to say how amazing Mormonism is mm-hmm. and that so many of the stigmas against it are totally out of thin air. Like, how could you think people are like that? And simultaneously express my profound gratitude for having come across the Baha'i faith and how enriching that has been. Like, these are not mutually exclusive goodnesses. I have been a profoundly grateful beneficiary of both and hope that others will have the opportunity to kind of take a sampling of all of those as well as all the other, like, goodnesses out there. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Aaron Wagner, a devout Mormon who became a Baha'i. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Trouble harass me. I will not dwell 
friend to me than I am to myself. I dedicate myself to Thee, O oh Lord. I dedicate myself to Thee, O oh Lord. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.